Well, it took me singing that song about four or five times to finally realize, oh, that's old Lang Syne. It, it took you a couple times, didn't it? Um, if you got your Bibles, I hope that you do. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to be looking into chapter 13 this morning at the first uh, large passage there uh, and, and, and finishing up uh, a series of messages about how we've been uh, looking at how Jesus is delivering life to us. And, and this morning, uh, I've just uh, entitled the message simply, Discovering Life. Yeah, there's all sorts of discoveries that we make in this life. Uh, I would, in, in kind of thinking about the discoveries that I've made uh, during the course of my lifetime, uh, I came across this particular idea as I was studying this week, just ruminating on that idea of what is it that I've discovered over the course of the years that I've lived. And, and I would say the second half of, of the life that I've lived thus far is that uh, one of the things that I've discovered is that being a parent helps you to discover uh, the approximately seven gazillion things that your parents did for you that you never knew they were doing. I mean, you just thought that your, all of your underwear just magically appeared clean in the drawers in your bedrooms. Uh, you just thought that you, every time you went to the ca- into the cupboard, it's just uh, food was there. Your, you know, your favorite Captain Crunch cereal was just always restocked. It, it, it helped me to discover that there are all sorts of things that my mom and my dad were doing that I just never had any recognition of whatsoever. I just, you know, I just bopped through life as a as a kid, as a teenager, having no idea what was going on behind the scenes. And, and fellas, it's kind of like being a husband. I mean, you just never know what it is that she's doing to make sure, to, to just kind of shore up all the mistakes and the problems that we have caused along the way. We don't even know what's going on behind the scenes most of the time in our lives of what other people are doing in order uh, to make a way for us, in in order to to make life easier for us, in order to open up the paths for us. And we really didn't even know what was going on when uh, spiritually in our lives, when Jesus was opening up the ways for us to find real life. I mean, think about all the things that we've chased after, that we've trusted in, that we look to for uh, success or for pleasure or for some kind of purpose in our life. And meanwhile, behind the scenes in the economy of God, He has been conspiring and He has been planning and He has been uh, like the hound of heaven, as one old pastor said it, coming after you so that you could discover what real life is really all about. It is only through the lens of the gospel that we can truly discover what real life is all about. Now, as we turn the page as it is in in the gospel of John, and we move from chapter 12 now this morning into chapter 13, uh, we're entering into a rarely interesting territory when it comes to studying the gospels. Because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is this huge amount of territory in all three of those other Gospels that is given to the, to the living, the three-year ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John is a little bit different in this sense. 
in that chapters 1 through 12 are dedicated to those three years of ministry, and then when we hit chapter 13 all the way to chapter 20, this is all about the last week of Jesus. Everything that we study from here on out is the Passion Week of Christ, of, of what He's doing in that last week, His arrest, His crucifixion, His death, His resurrection. And we find here in this very first part as Jesus has come into the city of Jerusalem, there is a festival that is happening, and here's how He begins to observe this festival. It says in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read down through verse 20. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end." Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. And Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into His hands, and He had come from God, and that He was going back to God. So, He got up from supper, laid aside His outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around Himself. And next, He poured water into a basin and began to wash His disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around Him. And he came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. And Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Well, one who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly since that's what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those whom I have chosen, but the Scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. A lengthy passage, but one that's got some important uh, messages for us th uh, this morning. Let me uh, once again offer a word of prayer, and we'll dive in. Father, we do know that in all things that You have a desire to be glorified, and, and because You want to be glorified in us, there's going to be transformation. God, help us to accept Your Word, to live by it, to actually love it, to know that regardless of anything that has been happening in our lives, that Your Word has power to root out sin and to impart Your goodness and Your righteousness. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So the Passover meal was about to begin. This is the, 
the recognition that the Jewish people would have year after year after year of what happened earlier in the book of Exodus, if you go all the way back and read uh, of the, uh, uh, the opportunity that uh, God took in order to free the Hebrew people from Egyptian slavery, uh, he, sending plagues against the Pharaoh and his people. The Pharaoh hardened his heart. He refused to let the Hebrew people go after he, God had sent Moses to tell the Pharaoh, you need to let my people go. And he just wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't. Nine times he wouldn't do it. And so finally, uh, the, God sends the death angel. And he tells uh, Moses to tell the Hebrew people that they are to uh, slay an animal that is pure, and they're to take the, the blood of the lamb that they have slain, and they're to wipe it on the doorpost of their house. Uh, this is kind of, uh, it, it kind of comes to us through history and a little bit of kind of sterile kind of thinking, but I want you to, to embrace the grossness that is here. Uh, you know, so you've, you've slain a sheep and you've, you've smeared the blood over the doorframe of your house as a sacrifice, that blood has been shed over the sins of this household. So then as the, the death angel came through Egypt, uh, the prophecy that Moses had been given by God that he gave to Pharaoh is that the firstborn of every home where, uh, where a sacrifice had not been made, that the firstborn of every home would be taken by the death angel. And so there was great mourning and great lament in Egypt that night uh, when uh, countless numbers of people died. Uh, as, a, as a judgment against that nation for their enslavement of God's chosen people. And then through all of those centuries uh, after that, they, they practiced this Passover meal where they would remember how God had delivered them out of the bondage of slavery and under the, out from under the boot of the Egyptian people. And so as they get prepared to embark into this religious festival where they're going to remember the redeeming power of God, Jesus does something odd. It says that He gets up and He starts to wash the feet of the disciples. But it is important to take note as to why He does this. It says there in verse 1 that He loved them to the end. I mean, this is the reason that Jesus is going to, has embarked on this journey to, very, to the very beginning uh, from time immemorial, he, he, being God, knew that He would have to come to the earth in order to sacrifice Himself for the sake of our sinfulness. And then in His earthly ministry, surrounded by a group of guys that were just like us, a bunch of knuckleheads that generally don't get it, Jesus, the commentator John, as he writes about the life of Jesus, he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John is telling us the end of the story before he gets there, that he tells us that the great motivation is why Jesus does this, that the love of Jesus is set as a foundation for all he does. Now, for those of you who have been in church for maybe a long, 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 long time, and you've got a very positive view of who God is, maybe the idea that, love, that the love of Jesus is set as a foundation for all He does it is basic to you. But we need to keep this as a reminder in our heart that there are plenty of people, plenty of our neighbors, plenty of people in the world who have no idea that God actually loves them. Uh, they think if God is out there, He is either removed and distant and disconnected, that He is like a great cosmic clockmaker who just put all of the cogs and the springs and the sprockets and the whatnots together, and He wound up this big machinery called humanity and earth, and He set it on the, on the, over on a shelf to see what it would do next. And they think, well, if He is there, He's disconnected, or they have the idea, if He's there, He's not happy with me. 
He's mad at me. He's looking for an opportunity to zap me with a lightning bolt. They have a Zeus kind of mentality about who God is. But we need to constantly remind the people that are surrounding us that that Jesus does this because of His love. Uh, that He was willing to love us to the very end of His life. He was, a, he was willing to love us through the crucifixion. He was willing to love us through His own death. And regardless of any obstacle that lay in His path, Jesus was going to love His people to the very end. And then through this passage, though there are lots of different uh, lessons that could be given, uh, I am constrained by time. Uh, And so I want to give to you uh, three observations that I make about Jesus in this particular passage. Number one is that Jesus cleanses us so that we can have fellowship with God. Uh, There is this idea, it is this physical portrait that Jesus makes of going and washing the feet of the disciples. Now, why is it that He does this? Well, in ancient times, they didn't have closed-toed shoes like you and I do, or some of us do. Some of you are wearing your flip-flops today. After all, it is Bradenton. Um, But instead, everywhere they went, they had sandals on, and they walked on dusty roads. And so, at the, at the opening of everyone's house, there was always one of two things, either a basin of water to wash your feet before you went into somebody else's home, or there was a servant there who would wash the feet of everyone who came into the home. And then when you went into the home in this kind of, in this first century uh, Jewish setting, and and this is true even today in many Middle Eastern settings, uh, they don't have furniture that is Western style like us, where you sit in a chair that is raised up off of the floor, but rather when you would eat, it was a, a very short table and everybody would lay around on pillows and recline really kind of on each other around a table so that essentially uh, your feet were in my face. So everybody wanted to have clean feet because everybody's feet was going to be in somebody else's face and everybody's face was going to be at somebody else's feet. This was an important thing, especially if you were going to have a meal together. Well, it would seem that at this particular, uh, at this particular time, uh, when they came in the door, it, it, the in general, we think, well, nobody, there must not have been a servant at the door. Uh, this was a, a group of kind of vagabond guys. They probably didn't have the money to have a servant, and this kind of house servant was always the lowliest servant of the house. And it would seem that perhaps nobody washed their feet when they came in the door, because otherwise, why is this whole thing going on? So Jesus is the one who gets up and does the washing. Culturally, this would have been a humiliating thing for a Jewish man to do. And then culturally, it should have been a humiliating thing to receive uh, by, on the part of the twelve apostles that the master of their group has lowered himself down to the lowest form of a servant in a household to do this work. But Jesus is using this service to first show that He has a desire to cleanse us. Uh, There in verse 8, it says, uh, Peter declares, you will never wash my feet. And then Jesus replies, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus is not just making a, a statement about whether or not Peter can sit next to him at the table. I think that that Jesus is making a spiritual declaration here about whether or not you're going to have fellowship with Him. Jesus is using the physical washing of feet to declare a spiritual reality. 
And he wants him to know that the only way to have a part with Jesus is for him to cleanse you. There's no other way forward here. There's no other way to have a part with Jesus unless he does the cleansing. It was not go wash your own feet so that you can come back and sit down and and do the religious festival meal correctly. It was that Jesus, as the master, needed to get up, put a towel around his waist, and go and serve these followers of his so that he could do the cleansing. He says, if I don't cleanse you, you don't have any part with me. Otherwise, we're left separated from him. This is yet one more declaration on the part of Jesus that he is the only way to salvation. There is not multiple ways. God is not at the top of a mountain, and and all of us are going up different paths to get to him. As you read faithfully and plainly the gospel narratives, all of the words of Jesus, he constantly comes back to this point that he is the only way to a cleansing relationship so that you can have a part with God. He is the only way to be able to have fellowship with God. There's a second lesson I think that Jesus uh, lets us in on about who He is. And, And number two, it's that Jesus serves us so that we'll have an example for our friendships with one another. Now, primarily, I think that Jesus does this uh, foot washing because He wants Peter and the apostles to know, and then by them knowing, we get to know that He has to cleanse us so that we can have fellowship with Him on a spiritual plane. But then He also sets a, a second reason here of giving us an example of how we are to relate to one another. It says there in verse 15, as Jesus is explaining it, he says, I've given you an example, so you also should do just as I have done for you. This is how his people are supposed to live with each other. We are supposed to serve one another. Even though all of us are completely undeserving of any service whatsoever, even though none of us really deserve for another person to come in and and break into our lives and to meet a need, this is the example that Jesus gives. And think about who it is that He gives it to. The twelve apostles that are there in the room with Jesus as He washes their feet, what's going to happen in just a few days? Well, one of them, Judas, it tells us in the passage, is going to betray him. Judas is is being influenced by the very spiritual enemy of the kingdom of God, Satan himself, and Jesus washes his feet. One of them, Peter, the one that he's having the interaction with, is going to deny him. He's he's actually going to curse at the idea that he knows Jesus while Jesus is being drugged from one illegal trial to another before he is crucified. And then the other ten guys are going to go, go run screaming into the night, scared and hide out when Jesus gets arrested. And yet, this is what Jesus does on behalf of the ones who are going to betray, deny, and abandon Him. Jesus is willing to do this work because He wants to set an example, which reminds me of a couple of uh, truisms that I think go along with this. Number one is the moment we think we have the right to be served, we've strayed from the way of Jesus. I mean, this, is, uh, this is clear. Uh, Jesus says in another place that, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus sets the example. And, and so the moment that we turn it upside down and we say, no, 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 I have a right to be served, 
then really we've strayed from the way of Jesus because Jesus shows up to serve. But then there's another truism that is similar, and that is the moment we think we have the, the right not to serve, we've also strayed from the way of Jesus. We've got to embrace this as this is how Jesus sets the example for us, is that we don't get a pass out of serving, and we don't get a pass into automatic service toward us. But rather, we should always have our eyes up and looking around for who is it that needs help next, never expecting that somebody's going to come along and sweep into our lives and take care of all of our needs, but rather we are just machines of service giving our lives over to the way of God. This is why I think in our church family, our life groups are so critical, because it is in your life group, in your Bible study group, whether it's on Sunday morning or it's on Tuesday night or it's on Sunday night or whenever it is that it happens, whether it's on the campus or in somebody's home, your life group is such a critical part of, of the expression of our faith, of how we are able to encourage one another to live out our faith and to love our neighbors. It's the place where naturally you form these deep bonds and relationships where you can find those people to, as it were, wash their feet. It's where you know that you've got that close friend who's going through that dark valley, that deep place where you can care for them in a room that is this size with this many people from one side to another. Uh, you over here don't necessarily know the, the needs that are right over here, and you that are back there don't know the needs that are right down here. But when you're in that life group together where you're, you're invested in one another's lives, you're praying for one another, you're studying the Word with one another, you know about what's going on in each other's families and work and, and, and what's happening, and you, you can swap stories and you can laugh together and you can cry together and you can bear one another's burdens. This is the place where we can very actively serve one another. The way of Jesus is to serve and never expect it in return. And then there's one more observation that I'd make from the life of Jesus here in this particular passage, and that is number three, Jesus commissions us so that the world will have a witness. The first was Jesus cleanses us so that we can have fellowship with God. Secondly, Jesus serves us so that we can have an example of how we are to have friendships with one another. But thirdly, Jesus commissions us so that the world will have a witness. He sets up in this passage a contrast between the one who is going to betray him and all of those that Jesus is going to commission. It is an odd kind of contrast that happens there in, in, in verses 16 through 20. Jesus lets them know that you're not ever going to be greater than your master, that if this is what I've done as your master, then this is what you can do as my servants. And he says there in verse 18, but I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the Scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. He's quoting from the Old Testament book of Psalm, Psalm 41. And he says, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. He's making a prophecy that, that somebody's going to betray him. Somebody's going to raise up uh, a power against him. Uh, they're gonna, it says they're going to raise up his heel. They're, somebody's going somebody's to kick me in the face, as it were. And then verse 20 almost seems like it's kind of out of place, but not when Jesus is putting it in contrast as to what Judas Iscariot is about to do. He says, in contrast to what Judas is going to do representing the enemy, he says, but truly, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. 
You know, the unity that, that we must feel as a congregation, as a church family, is around the work of the gospel. It is the binding mission that we have in order to take the gospel message to those who don't know Jesus yet. I could put it in a negative kind of way. We do not live to represent ourselves. We do not live to represent our local congregation or even our programming prowess. Instead, we live in this world to bear a witness for Jesus. That's why we live. I want you to, to ponder through that because in just a few moments, we're going to collectively take the Lord's Supper together, and I'm going to invite anyone who is a, a believer in Jesus Christ, if you a baptized believer, that, that you feel like you're, you're your heart and your soul is in good stead with the Lord, that you have confessed your sins, and we're going to take a, a few moments to pray about that uh, before we enter into receiving the Lord's Supper. But I want you to think about what this means, that we are about to physically go through a representation of how Jesus sheds His body, uh, sheds His blood, and He gives His body so that you and I might have salvation. And Jesus says to His early apostles, His earliest followers, Anybody who receives the person I send is receiving me, and anybody who has received me is receiving the one who sent me. He's referring to the Father in heaven. So that when you and I carry out a gospel witness into the world, we're not just taking our reputation. We're not just trying to convince people that, hey, I found some spiritual answers, and I think you might be able to find these spiritual answers. This has worked for me, and so maybe it'll work for you. This is not just about you or me or us collectively, that whenever we go out as this witness, we are bearing the witness, we are bearing the story of Jesus so that the city and the county and the state and the nation and the world will see Jesus lifted high, not necessarily that they'll see something cool about us. There's nothing cool about us. I mean, we're pretty normal. We're, what, is, what is different about us is that we've been transformed by the power of the gospel. And so congregationally, we should ask ourselves, how do we serve the city with the gospel? How do we serve people who are poor with the gospel? How do we serve people who are wealthy with the gospel? How do I serve my neighbor with the gospel? How do I serve my coworker with the gospel? How do I serve my family members, my kids, my grandkids, my aunts, my uncles, my parents with the gospel? It is, uh, as one theologian put it, the prophetic task of the church is to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion grieve in a society that practices denial and expresses hope in a society that lives in despair. This is our task, is to take truth into a society that constantly lives by illusion and mythos. And so, it brings me back around to that question that I posed to you a number of weeks ago, and that is, who's your one? Who's that one person here locally that you passionately pray for, that they would understand the good news of Jesus Christ, and that you actively look for an opportunity to share the gospel with? Who's that one person in your life that you are constantly praying that they would come face to face with the good news of Jesus Christ, that they would hear it from your voice, that they would see it in your life, that they would be surrounded by it, by witnesses that God puts in their path because He's the one who can put all of that together? Who is that one person? Who is it that we can invite to our dinner tables? 
uh, that we can have over for dessert, that we can have a game night, or that we can go fishing with, or that we can hang out with, that we can rub shoulders with in their life so that they can begin to see the power of the gospel alive in us and that they would be persuaded by it when they hear it from us. Jesus has commissioned us to be His emissaries, His representatives, His ambassadors in this world. And it starts with the willingness to serve so that we would see that only His cleansing can bring us into fellowship with Him. And then it sets an example as to how we are to relate to one another, that we are to serve, never expecting anything in return, but just pouring out our lives because this is what Jesus does. And then just recognizing that everything that I do as a Christian is representative of the name of Jesus. That, and, and to carry it as carefully as I can into the world, but as boldly as I can be Spirit-empowered to do so. And this, this is why we study the Word. This is why we call for um, decisions to be made. This is why we think that the mission of God is bigger and better and brighter than anything else that we could possibly dream up. This is why we worship, this is why we sing, this is why we pray, this is why we study the Word together, this is why we get together in little small groups and, and study and share life with one another, this is why we give, this is why we send mission teams, this is why we do work among the poor, this is why we do work with kids, this is why we do work with teenagers, this is why we do work with senior adults, because we want to lift up the name of Jesus in front of people. And this is why we practice the Lord's Supper, because there is no greater message than this. There's no greater knowledge than this to know that the God of the universe has come in the form of man and sacrificed His life on the cross, dead and buried, and victoriously risen from the dead, so that you and I if we would put our faith in Him, we might be saved. I want to encourage you this morning that if you've not come to a point in your own life where you've made a decision to accept Christ as your Savior, looking to Him as the author of your salvation, looking to Jesus as the, the payment for your sin debt against God, looking for forgiveness through Him. In just a moment, I'm going to ask us all to bow our heads and go into a moment of prayer. And I want to encourage you that during that time that you would confess Him as Lord of your life and confess your sins to Him and, and, and accept Him as your Savior. If you're a Christian, you've already made that decision. Before we enter into the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to encourage you to make sure that your, your ledger book is clean that you go before the Lord and you confess your sins before Him so that you can come before the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner so that there would be nothing in your life that would be insulting to this practice, that we are recognizing the body and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And though these are just uh, materials of the natural world, it's just a little unleavened cracker and a little bit of Welch's grape juice. Even though it's just normal stuff right out of the store, it has a spiritual meaning to us of what we celebrate this morning, that Jesus was willing to serve us and that He loved His own, you and me, to the very end. Let's pray together.